We're continuing our series, What We Believe in the Foundational Truths of the Christian Faith, using the Apostles' Creed as a guideline. And this morning we come to the topic of the Holy Spirit. And so we have several texts that we're going to look at briefly. The Scripture treats the Holy Spirit by sprinkling truth about Him throughout all of the Scripture, rather than in one single concentrated place. So we'll begin with Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. This is the very Word of God. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And now turning to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And now turning to Paul's First letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And then lastly, back to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 16, 17, and 26. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that by your word you would instruct us about who the Holy Spirit is about how important the Holy Spirit is to our lives and of all that He has done for us. Lord, we ask this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we have several texts dealing with various aspects of the Holy Spirit. We've come to that portion in the Apostles' Creed where we declare that we believe in the Holy Spirit. Now what is interesting is that the Creed itself does not tell us that much about the Spirit. When the Creed speaks to us of God the Father, it tells us that He is Almighty and that He is the Creator of heaven and earth. When the Creed speaks to us of our Lord Jesus Christ, it tells us who He is how he was born, the life that he lived, the death that he suffered, and his resurrection from the grave. And yet, with the Holy Spirit, the creed is very brief. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And this is a difficulty for us. For you see, oftentimes, we give short attention to the person and work of the Holy Spirit In America today, it seems that most Christians don't even understand who the Holy Spirit is or the basics of what He has done. In our survey that we have been discussing, done by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research, statements were given to Americans in general. But within that survey, a series of evangelicals Those who claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ were also surveyed, and they were asked whether they agreed or disagreed with the following statements. The Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. And 55%, more than half of evangelicals, agreed that the Holy Spirit is not a person that he is more akin to a rock or a tree or a cloud than Jesus and God the Father. Now, I suppose that there is some inherent bias in our day and age that people think that the force is a good thing. The force makes lots of movies, sells lots of merchandise, is everywhere in front of us. But the Holy Spirit is not a force. The Bible teaches us that he is a person. A second statement was put before an audience. The Holy Spirit gives a spiritual new birth or new life before a person has faith. 44%, almost half of evangelical Christians disagreed with that statement or were not sure it was correct. So in our day and age, in the 21st century church, people in America who are in church and claim to be Christians do not know who the Holy Spirit is and don't understand what He has done. 
The solution, as we have been seeing each week, is to go to God's Word. Is to encourage ourselves with the truth of God's Word, to study God's Word, so that we might know who God is. In this case, God the Holy Spirit. And so I'd like us to see three things from our passages this morning about the Holy Spirit. First and foremost, the Holy Spirit is a divine person. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. And He is God. Secondly, the Holy Spirit gives new life. The Holy Spirit is the author of life. He is the one who brings us from death to life. He applies the salvation purchased by our Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. And then thirdly, the work of the Spirit does not end when we are justified. No, it continues throughout our life because the Holy Spirit reveals the will of God to us. The Spirit is a divine person. The Spirit gives new life and the Spirit reveals the will of God. Let's begin then by looking at who the Spirit is. Now, there is an inherent difficulty in trying to understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Part of the reason that we have several texts this morning is that there is not one or two spots where we can go in the Scripture and find an entire chapter devoted to describing who the Holy Spirit is. But just as the Spirit is described as being sprinkled upon man, so He is sprinkled throughout the Scriptures. We see Him in Genesis 1, in creation. We see Him in the Gospels. We see Him in Paul's letters. We see Him in the book of Revelation. The Spirit is found throughout all of the Bible. But this makes it difficult for us to understand this doctrine that is wrapped in a mystery. Because you see, when it comes to understanding the Spirit of God, our language and our experience fail us. After all, when we think about God and God existing in three persons, one of whom is the Holy Spirit, it's difficult for us because we don't know any other being that exists in more than one person. It's hard to understand or describe to anyone. As a matter of fact, I would encourage you not to even try to give others illustrations of the Trinity. Because as soon as you begin to do that, you make yourself a heretic. The Trinity is not like an egg. Or like water, vapor, or ice. I can't describe the Trinity for you in human terms because there is no analogy. And so this makes it very difficult to understand. But also, when we think of the Spirit of God, it is difficult to think of the Spirit as being a distinct person. Because when we talk of someone's Spirit, we think of it as almost being a part of their being. That I have a Spirit, you have a Spirit, that is not separate and distinct from us, but that is a part of us. But the truth is, just because something is difficult to explain systematically, does not mean the Bible does not teach it. So we have to go to the Scriptures. Because remember, the Bible is not a textbook. It is a story. It is the story of God's work of redemption, redeeming sinners to Himself. And so, 
we look at several different places that give us glimpses of who the Spirit is. And we must remember where we have been. We have said we believe in God. We have said we believe in Jesus and that Jesus is God. And now we believe in the Holy Spirit, who is also God. Let's begin in Acts chapter 5 and verses 3 and 4. You know the story. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. There's probably a heading in your Bible that tells you that. It's the story of their death for having sinned. And you see, the problem with this passage is that there is a thief in the passage. No, I don't mean that the thief is Ananias or Sapphira. I mean the thief is, is that the passage steals our attention off of God and puts it on man. When we look at this text, the first thing that we are drawn to is Ananias and Sapphira and what they've done. And the penalty, they suffer for having done this. And then our minds begin to wander. Was that penalty deserving? Were they judged too harshly? And we begin to wrap ourselves up in this, and we miss the central point of the passage, and that is that Peter is describing for us who the Holy Spirit is. You see, Ananias and Sapphira have sinned. Do you see what their sin is? Their sin is not holding back money. Their sin is not giving. Peter goes out of his way. He says, when that was yours, you could have kept it and done anything you wanted with it. Nobody made you give. It was yours by all rights. But the sin that Peter describes is lying. He says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to ask a significant philosophical question. And I'm going to need the help this morning of everyone between the ages of 6 and 12. You need to look at me closely and answer in your minds this question. Can you lie to a thing? Can you lie to grass? Or trees? Or a rock? Have you ever lied to a rock? No, of course not, right? That's silly. The pastor's being ridiculous. You can't lie to a tree or to grass. You lie to people, right? You can lie to your dad or to your mom or to your boss. Now, I encourage you not to, but that's who you lie to when you lie. So why would Peter tell us that Ananias had lied to the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit was just a force, if he was like a rock or a tree? That makes no sense, does it? When you see, the truth is that the Spirit is not like a rock or a tree. He is a person. He can be lied to because he is a person. What Peter is describing is a personal affront. Have you ever had the experience of speaking with someone who has confronted you after you have lied to them? It's hard, isn't it? They say things like, well, I'm really disappointed. And that makes you want to dig a hole about 12 feet deep and crawl in it, right? You see, it's a personal affront. There's pain. There's relationship there. And that's what Peter is describing with the Spirit. Now, the rest of the Bible supports this view that Peter gives to us. Throughout the Bible, the Spirit is described as having personal properties, 
and taking personal actions. One of them is in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 10. Where the Bible tells us that the Spirit has wisdom. That He knows things. The Spirit also is the one who gives us the Bible. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, how? By the Holy Spirit. The fact that you have a Bible in your hands today is a gift from the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives gifts to men. He gives gifts to the followers of Jesus Christ. Paul writes it this way in 1 Corinthians 12. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions, that is, gives, to each one individually as he wills. You see, the fact that believers have gifts is a result of the Spirit giving them to them. They're not called spiritual gifts because they're somehow ethereal. They're called spiritual gifts because they come from the Spirit. So as you look around, do you wonder why you have the gift of administration? And someone else has the gift of hospitality. Someone else has a gift of teaching. Someone else has a gift of encouragement. Did you think that was completely random? That in the hospital, the day you were born, as you were born, there's some kind of cosmic ball game where a ball goes and goes between pegs and drops down, and all of a sudden, oh, you got encouragement. That's what it happens to be. No. There's no randomness. You are who you are because God has made you to be that way. He has gifted you. The Holy Spirit has a purpose in giving gifts to build up the church. He has an eye and a mind to the entirety of the kingdom. Only a person takes that kind of action. Only a person has that kind of purpose. Why is this important? It's important because if we think of the Holy Spirit as a force, then the world really is just subject to random forces. If the Holy Spirit is a force, there's no purpose to what He's doing. Now think about this. A force can be used for good or evil, right? Anyone who's ever watched a Star Wars movie knows that. They know that there's a dark side and a light side. And Yoda's going to tell us about it in bad grammar. And the force can be used by someone to get an end. The Holy Spirit is not a means to an end. He's not a power. He has his own ends and purposes. He is a person. But we can't separate the personhood of the Spirit from the deity of the Holy Spirit because he is a divine person. The Holy Spirit is also God. When Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that the Spirit reveals the things of God, he tells us this because he is God. And Peter himself in Acts chapter 5 does not shy away from this. Do you see what he says? He tells Ananias, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in his next breath he says, you have lied to God. Peter is equating them for us. The Spirit is a person and he's also God. 
the Bible puts it this way. The main name for God in the Bible is the Lord. Now, if you want to take a good exercise during lunch, open your Bible to the book of Psalms and see how many times over and over and over again the word Lord is used when it means God. Come back and report it to me. You better have a big sheet of paper. It's in the hundreds. Lord means God. And yet the Spirit is described this way. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 2 Corinthians 3. So we have to understand here that the Bible is very clear. It pulls no punches. It wants us to understand and know that the Spirit is a person and that the Spirit is God. And when we reduce the Spirit to a force, when we deny His divine acts, we blaspheme Him. We speak ill of Him. Because the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is from all eternity. In Hebrews 9, verse 14, He is the eternal Spirit. The Holy Spirit is all-powerful. In Luke chapter 1, the Spirit comes upon Mary, and in all of His power, He preserves the Lord Jesus Christ from sin. The Holy Spirit is all-knowing, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2. And the Holy Spirit is present everywhere. The psalmist says in Psalm 139.7, Where could I go to flee from your Spirit? If I go to heaven, He's there. If I go down to the grave, He's there. Anywhere I go, the Spirit is found. The Spirit is omnipresent. This is who the Spirit is. The Spirit is a person. But He's also God. Now, it is important for us to see that the Spirit is God. It is important for us to see this because of the second truth that the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit. And that is that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives new life to the believer. The Bible ascribes the work of salvation to the Holy Spirit. Not the purchasing of salvation, but the application of salvation. If you go through your Bible, everywhere, the Father calls a people, the Son purchases a people, and the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to the people. Salvation is a Trinitarian concept. And you see, this is critical for us because apart from God, we have no life. We need God to give us life. Only God can save. And the Spirit brings that salvation to us. Now, the problem for you and for me and for society is that we continually fall for the lie. The lie that every other religion propagates. The lie that every other religion holds out hope based on what we do. Now, sometimes what we do is easy. There are many in our society that hold out hope based on what we do, and what we do is defined as being mostly nice to people in public. That gets us where we need to be. 
There are other religions that take a much starker view. In Islam, there are a whole host of things you have to do over your whole life, every day, month by month. You have to make pilgrimages thousands of miles away. You have to pray in a certain direction. You have to do certain things. But your salvation and hope is found in what you do. All of this tells us that we can save ourselves. But the Bible tells us a different story. The Bible teaches us that we are not sick in need of healing. The Bible teaches us that we are dead. Paul minces no words in Ephesians 2, 1. He says, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins. God gives us a picture of what this looks like. Unless we might think dead means someone who's flatlined and maybe with just a little bit of electrical power and a juice they can come back. No. In Ezekiel chapter 37, God takes Ezekiel to a valley and he says, I'm going to take you to this valley of dry bones. There's no flesh at all. Everything is dead. There's just bones. There's no way they're coming back to life. And God, by His Spirit, makes those bones live. He brings life out of death. That is what God does. We are lost. We are, the Bible tells us, callous. We have consciences that are seared, like with a hot iron. Have you ever had the experience of burning a part of your hand badly so that it's seared? Now, once you get past the incredible initial pain, you know, you put the ice on, a day later, you go and you touch that spot and you can't feel anything, can you? It's dead skin. There's no feeling where it is. That's how the Bible describes us. We are beyond feeling. We do not seek God. We are dead in our sins. We cannot do anything to bring ourselves to life. We are as hopeless and helpless as Lazarus in the tomb. But then there are the two most marvelous words in all of the Bible. But God. And God intervenes. Over and over again we hear these words, more than 43 times, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible acknowledges that we're hopeless and helpless, and it says, but God made us alive together with Christ. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, before our act got cleaned up, when we were still rebels against God, when we still hated God, when we still were not sure what we believed, Christ died for us. You see, this is how God brings salvation to his people. Perhaps the most well-known passage on salvation in the Bible is John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so the Bible tells us that we must believe in Jesus. It does this over and over again. Paul speaks to the Philippian jailer, and he says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. 
Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will, though he die, yet shall he live. But the question we then face is, perhaps you're facing it here this morning. Pastor, you don't make any sense. You've just told me I've got to believe in Jesus, but then you've just told me I'm dead. Dead people don't believe. Dead people don't do anything, right? Exactly. Well, how can we believe then? Let's look up from John 3.16 to earlier in this chapter. Jesus tells us that we need to be born again in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Not only can we not believe in Jesus, we can't even see him. So, what does that mean? Because if there is one thing in your life that I feel confident you had absolutely nothing to do with, it is your birth. You didn't decide when you were going to be born, where you were going to be born, what it was going to happen. Being born is something that happens to you. That's why it's a passive verb. A mother gives birth. In case you were wondering who was doing all the work, kids, ask mom. She will describe to you in great detail who did all the work that day. And it wasn't you. It's something that happens to you. And Nicodemus can't understand this. He says, well, what does that mean? Do I somehow have to climb back in my mother's womb and be born again? How do I do that? How do I do being born, Jesus? He knows it's not something he can do. And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You see, the answer is found in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is how we are born again. Jesus tells us we must be born, born of the Spirit. Remember that picture of the Valley of Dry Bones. It is a sovereign act of God to make those bones live. And so it is with a sinner. The Holy Spirit brings life where there was once death. He brings holiness where there was once filth. He brings goodness where there was evil. He takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, the Lord says in Ezekiel 37. The spirit is the one who brings us to life. But there is more than just the giving of new life. The Spirit is also with us throughout our life. The Holy Spirit enlightens our minds and He gives us understanding. The Holy Spirit renews our wills and gives us encouragement. The Holy Spirit reveals the will of God to us. 
Because you see, salvation is not just about safety. Salvation is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. Salvation is about a relationship with the living God. God wants us to know Him. And that's what He's doing throughout all of the Bible. That's why the prophets speak. That's why God speaks. That's why we call the Bible Revelation. Because God is revealing who He is to us. So how does God reveal himself and his acts to us? 1 Corinthians 2 tells us it's through his spirit. God has revealed these things to us through his spirit. It is like God pulling back the curtain that separates us from him and reveals himself to us. Now how could the spirit reveal these things to us? Reveal who God is unless he knew it. And again we see here that the Spirit is God. Because he not only knows about God, he knows the very depths of God. Think about that for a moment. Others around you know you. They know who you are. Perhaps the ones that are closest to you know you best. Your spouse, your siblings, your family. But does anyone know you like you know yourself? Who hears the things that you think and don't say? Who sees the dreams that you have and don't express? You know yourself to the depths of your being. Things that aren't even revealed. And that's... Why the Spirit can reveal God. Because He knows the depths of God because He is God. And He reveals the things of God to the people of God. No one else has this comprehensive knowledge. Paul puts it this way in verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? Who could possibly know God as intimately as the Spirit of God? Now, why is it so important for us to see the Spirit this way? Couldn't it have just been sufficient for us to know God the Father, to know Jesus Christ? So often we fail to understand the Spirit of God because we don't think we need to know who the Spirit is. He's the tag-along. He's the hard-to-understand person of God. And so we focus on the Father and the Son. But you see, it is important for us to know the Spirit of God because if we want to know God, it is only by the Spirit. And Jesus tells us of this importance. In the last days before His death, our Lord Jesus Christ described for the disciples that he was going to send another helper, that he was going to send them the Spirit. And this is what he picks up in John 14. There's actually a passage. It's one of the most remarkable passages in all of the Bible. Jesus actually says to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was standing there next to Peter and John and James, I would have said, whoa, 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 whoa. I want you, Jesus. 
How could it possibly be to my advantage that you go away? And the answer is that unless Jesus goes away, he cannot send the Spirit. That's how important the Spirit is to our Christian life. It was to our advantage that Jesus would depart so that we might have the Spirit. For our sake, Jesus asked that the Spirit would be sent. He says this in verse 16 of John 14. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. He tells us that only those who are united with Christ by faith can receive the Spirit The world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you. And that's why it is so critical to understand the Holy Spirit. Do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to know the things of God? Then God's way of resolving that is to send his spirit to you so that you would know. Knowing the Spirit is essential to our faith and it is essential to living out our faith. That knowledge of who the Holy Spirit is and what He has done and what He is doing is essential to our walk with Jesus. I believe in God the Father and I believe in Jesus Christ, His Son. But never forget that I believe in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for revealing your Spirit to us, for reminding us that there is none like you, O Lord, great three in one. And so we ask, even this morning, that you would make your word clearer to us, that you would enlighten our eyes and renew our wills, that we might follow after you. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen.